You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. It's just incredibly important and it seems to me that if there's not some sort of intervention in the way children learn about food and being with other people around a table, we are handing them over to the advertisers because what else do they do? Welcome back to Books and Ideas at Montalto. In this episode, Jacqueline Krupe speaks with Stephanie Alexander on Alexander's unparalleled five-decade career as a cook, writer and restaurateur and the legacy she has built for generations of professionals and amateurs in kitchens around the country. This episode was recorded on Boon Wurrung country. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders past and present. We pay respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. Welcome everyone to this incredibly special and intimate lunch and conversation with Stephanie Alexander at this breathtakingly beautiful vineyard. My name is Jacqueline Krupe. I'm a bookseller at Hill of Content Bookshop. I'm a book editor and I'm just a generally bookish person. It's so fitting that this event is taking place here at Montelto as we find the confluence of many aspects of Stephanie's life, restaurant and garden, food and produce, dining and hospitality. So Stephanie's unparalleled career in food has spanned five decades. For 21 years, she was the force behind Stephanie's restaurant, an establishment that set a standard that defined an era. We're going to talk quite a lot about Stephanie's today. She's the author of 18 books. Bravo, 18. Do I know? It's slightly contentious if it's 18 or 19. I went 18, but um, we can say 19. It's almost pretty much 19, Um, including The Cook's Companion, which has become the kitchen bible for Australian cooks such as myself and many of you, I'm sure, selling more than half a million copies. In 2001, she did the incredible thing of launching Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Program, which now operates in more than 1,000 schools around Australia, teaching our kids about growing, preparing, cooking and sharing delicious, fresh, seasonal food. She's the recipient of the Medal of the Order of Australia, well done on that, an Officer of the Order of Australia. She's launched hundreds of careers, some of which we'll talk about later on, Um, and she's fundamentally changed the way we think about food in this country. Please join me in welcoming Stephanie Alexander. So there's a lot of love in this room for you, Stephanie, which is lovely. Oh, it's sort of overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> so I, of course, want to talk about your new book, um, Home, which is just, we've just sampled some delicious dishes from it. But I actually thought we should start by talking about your connection to where we are right now, which is that a large part of your childhood took place in West Roseboat um, and on this peninsula. Can you tell us a little bit about that time in your life and what the peninsula was like? Well, it was a long time ago. That's the first thing I should say. And um, my family bought a big bush block in West Rosebud, now called Capel Sound, I believe. Um, But I, I, in my head, it is still West Rosebud or even Rosebud West. And um, we, I grew up with. wilderness to roam in um, and I remember very fondly the whole running through the bush, making camps, you know, playing, 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 imaginative games. And when it came to year seven, when I was first planning to go, when I needed to go to secondary school, there was no secondary school because there had been a dramatic lot um There was no building materials after the Second World Mm. War and although people would be talking about the idea that they needed a high school for God knows how long, it still hadn't eventuated. So when the beginning of year seven, all the children who were of that age from Portsea to Dramana were put into a great big bus and we chugged up the hill to Red Hill. And we chugged up the hill to a church hall just about opposite the showgrounds. I don't know whether it still exists. probably still does. Lots of nods. It was a most amazingly basic little building. It had two rooms. The toilets were down the bottom of a very muddy slope. Um, (laughs) And there was a sort of other shed that became sort of like that shelter shed thing. So there were about 50 kids 
Um, and they ranged from, well, they, none of us knew each other. Mm. Two teachers straight out of Teachers College were sent to look after this <laughs> motley crew. It became like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> the, I mean, it was extraordinary. When I look back, we went wild. Wow. We, I did some terrible things, but other people did even worse things. <laughs> And finally, those two teachers were withdrawn Ooh. and two better teachers were employed, including one who just arrived from England who was fierce and she became a lifelong friend of mine, actually, for many, many, many years. But she said, she, has, she used to say, when I first arrived into that school I, in Australia, my first school in Australia, I wondered what I'd struck. <laughs> because everybody, I mean, there was just nothing. There were no other teachers, there was no guidance. Kids jumped out windows, <laughs> dropped farmer's tools down wells. I wow. mean, terrible, terrible. Anyway, that was my <laughs> first year of school on the Mornington Peninsula. The second year, the school was still not built, so that same little cohort of kids were still stuck in the same silver bus, and we were taken off to Frankston High School, where we were treated as absolute pariahs, these little, <laughs> this little group of people who'd come from down, down there. By the third year... My year 10, Rosebud High School was built. And so I was part of the very first intake of the first students at Rosebud High School. So, of course, I became a prefect and then I became the school captain, which was all a bit ridiculous, really, when you think about it. I think there were, I don't know how many of us by that stage, but it wasn't big. And so by the time I got to my last year of secondary education in those days called matriculation... I was A, the only girl, B, the class was five, and um, three of the five subjects were done by correspondence, which is not the same as online learning, can, <laughs> I, can I say. And so it was, a, it was an interesting experience. But so that was just school. But at home, I had the most fantastic, broad, wonderful education for life. My parents were interested in lots of – they were interested in the arts, they were interested in food. My father was a builder, so he was interested in practical things. And we loved entertaining and we loved sharing what we knew and my parents loved um, making friends with people from other places. And there were many, many refugee families that we became very friendly with. And as a nine, ten-year-old – I became used to seeing and hearing the lovely stuff that was going on around the family table, which I was sitting at also, and the different foods that were brought by friends of mum and dad, the Austrian friends, the Polish friends, um, and the conversation and the laughter and, of course, the wine. And, and I can tell you that in 1959 there were very few Australian families that were having table wine as a matter of course every mm. night and my parents were. So it's probably not surprising that I grew up feeling that conviviality, sharing around a table, conversation, talking about important things but always with lovely food was part of my life from a very early stage. And it, despite all the ups and downs of my life since, that is the constant. That is the thing that restores me, gives me most joy, and, um, yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the most important pleasure that I just feel in my life's work in all its funny permutations has been to show that everybody can bring this beautiful thing into their life every day without anxiety. Mm. I've heard you say that... All the great things in your life have happened around the table, which I like. Well, yeah. well, a lot of them, some of them. Um, can we talk a little bit about your mother and her cooking and what her style of cooking was for your family? Well, she loved to cook and she was very unusual amongst her contemporaries. She was seen as being a bit odd because she liked to cook unusual things and she had as a younger woman visited Japan because she was very interested in Japanese woodblock printing, 
So she would come home and um, we would have raw fish and seaweed and things like that, which was pretty unusual in 1958. And um, I'm not saying she served it every night, but she was just interested, so she would give it a go Mm. and do this and taste it. And she would always have a little story whenever she... Whenever she served something that she thought was worth drawing our attention to, which was most nights, she would say, the reason I'm doing this or this rye bread is something that my Hungarian friend said is the way that they use their their bread and it's got this little funny little bit in it is caraway seeds and you'll find that's got a very specific taste and uh, blah, blah. So that I'm not saying that as a child we necessarily lingered on all this information but it went in some of it went out and a lot of it stayed and the the pleasure that she got from it was extremely inspirational and it rubbed off I've got I'm one of four children and we all love to cook we all have some sort of vegetable garden more or less and we all seek to mark any occasion around a table Beautiful. So the other woman who had a huge influence on your cooking life um, from the very beginning was Elizabeth David. Um, Her writing, much like yours, always sends me straight into the kitchen. I feel it's a call to action. How did she influence you and does she continue to influence you? Well, she does because I was enraptured with the idea of going to France before I ever got there. And, I, and, and reading the works of Elizabeth David um, very early on was, for me, absolutely, well, it stopped me in my tracks, I'd have to say. And she, she writes a fine paragraph mm-hmm. and she is very adept at finding the essence of a dish or the thing that you really notice about something. And for a long time, I gave a copy of her French Provincial Cooking to every one of my apprentices and saying, you know, everything you'll ever need to know about cooking is in that. And as I've said in home, that sounds ridiculous now in this globalised world because clearly, you know, we we acknowledge there are huge things to learn from the Asian palate, from Middle Eastern food. But as far as I was concerned, uh, Elizabeth David was the guru and... I have continued to follow, to read her work. She, she died in 1992, but I have, con- I, I still read stuff from Elizabeth David probably every week. And it's oh. just one of those things I'll pull off my bookshelf and just go anywhere, read it, and, and get immediately seduced by the writing, by the atmosphere she's creating, by the memory she's reigniting in me of probably the same place because I have spent a lot of time in France and many of the things that she talks about I have eaten, been there, done that sort of thing. So it's a, a bit of a memory thing as well. Yeah, you're you're very similar writers in lots of ways, I feel. There's... um. There's such comfort in both of your writing, but um, I could talk about Elizabeth David all day, but we won't. Um, we're going to skip ahead a few years. Uh, you opened your first, I'm, I'm going to call it a restaurant, but it's probably more a cafe, Jamaica House, um, with a three-week-old baby in tow. Not you, ideal. No, I was about to say, you probably don't recommend doing that. But what, do, what are you proudest of uh, with regard to Jamaica House? Looking back. Well, it was a very important part of my life. It was my first husband. We were wildly in love. We had this ridiculous idea of having this coffee lounge and showing Melbourne how to enjoy some Jamaican flavours. Uh, getting pregnant and having the baby was not part of that original <laughs> thought. And and she was early or she was late? She was early. She was early. No, she was late. She was You're late. You're quite right. Yeah, and we made this older. stupid mistake of sort of publicising an opening of this co- coffee lounge. Coffee lounges no. what, was what you had in the 1960s. There were no such things as cafes and you certainly didn't have a licence and you certainly <laughs> didn't have a BYO licence either oh. because they didn't exist. Um, so it was a coffee lounge and... Um, it just, I suppose what I'm proud of really is that it, it set, uh, well, I designed the first menu and the restaurant under various permutations of ownership 
still kept much of that menu, God knows how long later, 20 years later or something. But, um, look, we worked... I suppose what I just say, it's my first introduction to professional cooking. It was a rude introduction <laughs> and it was not to be recommended to, to do this with a three-week-old baby. It's not fair and I've apologised over and over again <laughs> to my now 50-year-old daughter to say, I'm really sorry about the start you had. <laughs> what does she say in response to that? Well, she's inclined to shrug right. because my first husband did died and and... Um, she went through a lot of grief mm. about that and I think that she, the, the business of being tucked in a bunny blanket and pushed against the wall and held there with a chair is probably something she doesn't remember, <laughs> yeah. fortunately. Yeah, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. So I'm going to skip forward probably 10 to 15 years. There was You worked as a librari- librarian and then you opened Stephanie's and we're going to talk a bit about that. Some people in this room, I'm hoping, were lucky enough to eat at Stephanie's restaurant. I sadly was not one of those who got to dine in those grand rooms, but I've looked at a lot of photos and menus and the whole archive, really. But I want to talk about the kitchen and the culture of the kitchen that you tried to cultivate. I've heard you call it a happy kitchen, and I've heard you call yourself a benevolent dictator. I think you can be a benevolent <laughs> dictator and still have a happy kitchen. Right. Um, I think the difference to today is that the whole idea of creative, being a, a creative restaurateur, wanting to do your own thing, was quite a novel and new experience. It was definitely influenced by what was happening in Europe, but it meant that the people that came and wanted to cook with me were people who, like me, probably hadn't had any sort of professional training in cooking because at that stage it was extremely unlikely that females would have been at William Anglis, which was the main college for hospitality training. There were some I've discovered, so I can't say that absolute blanket thing, but it was very rare. So the people who came and said, I'd love to work with you, were people who were very keen on food, had very interesting backgrounds often themselves. So we did end up, well, we started anyway at Stephanie's Restaurant with enthusiastic amateurs Mm -hmm. and they loved good food and we were all prepared to work hard and we learned a lot. Didn't make any money but (laughs) we learned a lot and we got on well and we were very... In, we were in love with what we were doing. When we moved to Hawthorne into the big grand house, everything had to get bigger. We had to employ more staff, and I think that was the first time I actually employed people who were qualified chefs, And but they still had to be prepared to do it my way. And, um, you know, I'm often asked about the thing about being female and running a kitchen. Mm. But the thing is that if you're in charge of it, They have to do it your way. I mean, there is no choice. So I I was never had to cope with anyone bullying me or saying you can't do it this way. I said this is the way it's going to be done. And um, half the time I didn't know what I was talking about. But I, you know, look, if I felt firmly about it, I wanted to. I wanted to at least find out for myself: would it work? Would it not work? Would it have been better if it was done this way? But it was a very happy kitchen. We worked as a team. We we faced issues. We were um, lauded. We were written about. Um, we had a lot of attention, probably too much attention. Mm, we did a lot of special functions, a lot of – and we were just constantly changing. It was this business of a new menu every week. You know, the, the paces you put yourself through when I think about it is quite – unrealistic um but you know it kept i was excited and i never never lost the the excitement never over the whole time 21 years later it ended on new year's eve 21 years and you should look up the menu that stephanie served on new year's eve (laughs) that's a very special looking menu anyway i digress so an apprentice quit on you once telling you and this is a quote i'm sick of doing everything perfectly which i just i love that quote 
But this striving for that elusive perfection does seem to be something that drove you. That's, that was a driving force, especially during those years at Stephanie's. Um, something that comes through in your memoir, A Cook's Life, which I also highly recommend everyone read, um, is just how hard on yourself you are um, and certainly were at that time incredibly hard on yourself. Um, I shed some tears over it. I thought, gosh, everything you've achieved and you're so hard on yourself, but so few of us strive to reach that level of perfection for so long. So what I want to know is what you learnt in the striving for perfection. This is my hardest question, I promise. Well, it's taken me probably 30 years to, or more, to realise that um, you probably can't. Mm. I very reluctantly say that because okay. I still <laughs> I still think perfection is out there. Um, I think you have to look after yourself and it's taken me a long time to really come to terms with that. Mm. And, to, and the other thing it's taken me a long time to come to terms with is to really believe the, the lovely things that people say. Mm. You know, and that is ridiculous. But, you know, if somebody says something lovely to you, you should be able to just suck it up and feel good about it. I immediately say, oh, they're not really talking about me, mm. they're talking about somebody else. Now, that is not a good characteristic, <laughs> and it's, but at least I'm acknowledging it now and I acknowledge this is the famous imposter syndrome. Yeah. I'm probably a very good example of the imposter syndrome problem, but I've got better. Okay. I've got better. I've now realised that I have made certain achievements and they've been important. I have inspired lots of lovely young people and they've gone on to do great things themselves. Uh, I'm very proud of the kitchen garden movement, which is going to always be fraught with terrible problems, but which is worth fighting for. And so I think I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm not quite as hard on myself mm. as I was. I am happy to hear that. Um, I want to talk about some of those young people who came up um, at Stephanie's and under your guidance. Uh, some incredible cooking talent, and I've really cut my list down, but um, Annie Smithers, Neil Perry, Natalie Paul from Beatrix Bakes, to name just a tiny, tiny handful. And I just wondered what you saw in these young people starting out that made you hire them. Well, Annie came to me as an apprentice, so she had uh, w wanted to change her indentures to me, and I said, fine, <laughs> um, and she was... I mean, you never know when you hire an apprentice or whether an apprentice, when an apprentice joins your team what they're going to turn out to be. You can only interview them and get an idea. And some of my best friends have started out as apprentices and they've gone on to become qualified people and to run businesses of their own, not always running restaurants, uh, as it turns out. But they're people who have stood the test of time. They're intelligent. They're compassionate. They're genuinely interested in good food. They are kind people and they are, they've got a sense of humour and I like being with them. Mm, so. That's pretty important. Um, I do want to talk about women in the kitchen, if you don't mind. Um, our head chef today is an incredibly talented woman. Um, and you seem you are a particular champion of women in the kitchen and I just wondered why was that important to you? I don't think I set out to sort of see it as a thing. I just happened to be female and I wanted to run a restaurant. And it didn't occur to me that there should be any reason why I shouldn't run a restaurant just because I was female. I didn't even think about it. Mm. And it's only been in the last 15 years that I've been aware of how much media comment is about, you know, what's it like being a female in the kitchen? You know, have you been bullied? Have you been this, that and the other? Well, no, of course I haven't because I was the boss. <laughs> it if is there was a going to be experience. any bullying done, I'd be doing it to the boys. <laughs> Hopefully there was no – there was a bit of bullying and, in fact, the only time that I can – would have been prepared to talk about bullying in my own kitchens was when we had a French chef who um, will remain nameless. Okay. And he did try a bit of bullying of women in the kitchen. He also tried a bit of bullying to the dishwasher. Oh. Now, this is Australia. You don't bully the dishwasher. The dishwasher is probably one of the most important people in the whole kitchen I team. hope the dishwasher in the kitchen can hear that. 
and the dishwasher sort of came up to this rather punchy young man with a, virtually his fist in his face and said, do you want to say that again, mate? <laughs> <laughs> that immediately stopped. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because that was bringing into an Australian kitchen the worst thing that comes from a French training system. Mm. We know there's many, many, many wonderful things, but that sense, that hierarchical thing of because I'm the chef, I can put down the lower persons was is a, is a very bad thing. So I think that was the only time in my professional life that I've seen bullying happen in my own kitchen. Um, no, mostly my faults would be the other way, that I sort of was, took a turned a blind eye to bad behaviour when I should have perhaps been tougher, I think. It's a hard thing. Um, in, in researching this event, I, I looked to what chefs say about you <gasps> from all over the world and they all talk about your palate. Your palate comes up a lot. Um, almost every chef mentions your palate, Nigella Lawson, like I, I've got a list but I won't go on. Um, and your understanding, what, I think what they mean by that is your understanding of what goes with what. Um, and it feels strange to ask you about your palate <laughs> but I did wonder if you think it's your curiosity about food, which I think began with your mother, very much with your mother, and your joy of eating good food that allowed you to cultivate this palate of yours. Not sure, not sure I can answer that. I don't know. I also think travel, mm. you know, I have travelled a lot. I've spent a long time in France, less time in Italy, but, you know, going to lots and lots and lots of small restaurants, talking to chefs, reading. I've done a lot of reading and I've done a lot of eating. Mm. <laughs> and um, there's nothing like actually eating things to say, uh, I think that, that perhaps shouldn't have gone together, or that would be, or that would, what a glorious combination that is, you know, mm. something you encounter for the first time. So I think it's that sort of experience. Yeah. I think, yeah. You're a very adventurous eater, and I wondered if there was anything you would not eat. I don't think I'd eat dog. Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably fair. We all love our dogs. And... Well, it could be offered to you in China. Yeah. Um, look, I am, I am an adventurous eater. I think I would try almost anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something to admire. So uh, your respect and admiration for producers, um, the farmers, the crabbers, the apiarists, the fishermen, is really clear in all of your books and writing. It comes through so strongly. And that idea of good, honest food starting with good mm. produce. Um, I think that's something you live by. Um, so your role in developing the produce we now take for granted um, I don't think it can be overstated. I think we we eat a lot of foods and a lot of foods are available to us because you supported the producers to grow or raise those foods. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit how about how the produce has changed over your years cooking, be it a kitchen or at home. Well, it's just, you know, changed out of all recognition from what was available to most of us in the, 19, the late 1950s. Some of us will remember that. Um, you know, your local fruit and vegetable shop was uninspiring, to say the least. Wasn't I mean, they were lovely people, I'm sure, and the potatoes and turnips and whatever's <laughs> were excellent, but there wasn't a lot of fanciful stuff, nor was there any... More importantly, there was no attempt to make... The shop didn't look beautiful. And mm. one of the things that when I got to France when I was 21, which is a long time ago, the thing that knocked me out and has never ceased to amaze me was the, the sense of beauty, mm. the sense that if you're going to display lettuces, strawberries, potatoes, chilies, whatever they are, you make it look sensational and the markets were sensational, just a street market or the local little provador that was on the side of the road in a little town. Everything looked appetising and beautiful and you wanted to buy it immediately. So there was this pride in, in, in what it looks like, that beauty of produce and that's, that's something I have never lost. Um, we found that it was very obvious in the 50s, late 50s, that um, you needed to 
encourage anyone, any grower or provider who was prepared to have a go at something a little bit out of the usual. And the two things that always stick to my mind, well, three things stick to my mind. Firstly, French tarragon. The only way you could get French tarragon was to grow it. Now, that's fine, but if you're a restaurant and you've Mm. got 100 people coming for dinner four nights a week, you need more than a little dainty bunch of tarragon. And so you have to – I used to have – five friends who all had healthy bunches of tarragon and I would choose when I could put chicken with tarragon on the menu because I could go and pick a bunch from here and a bunch from Uh. there. But I couldn't have kept it going for very long. So that was the sort of thing. So cut herbs were not available. Lettuce. In France, those beautiful floppy lettuces that were purple and green and frilly round the edges and big broad ribs, all the different varieties of salad greens. Unheard of. So somebody had to do that. Waxy potatoes, yellow-fleshed potatoes, unheard of. Now, what had to happen was that you had to find somebody who was interested in growing. And sometimes they came to me, which was wonderful, and said, look, I've got these great potatoes, are you interested? And sometimes I had to say, I'll take them all, even if I only wanted a small amount, because that person definitely needed to be encouraged to feel that what they had was a viable crop. Mm. And there were other people in the country, not just me, doing this. And gradually it became obvious that some of these really marvellous small producers um, were making an impact. And, of course, the next thing that happens was that the big growers see the niche being filled by the small specialist thing and decide to do it themselves, which is sometimes good and sometimes not. But it does mean over the next 30 years that we now have a situation in this country where anyone... Anywhere, you don't have to be rich, you don't have to shop in a very esoteric market, is able to choose from a very, very broad range of lovely fresh produce. May not look as wonderful as it did in France, (laughs) but it's pretty good and it's usually pretty fresh. Yeah. Okay, so moving from the restaurants to the Kitchen Garden Foundation. So your love of good produce, your belief in the importance of the family table. They combined to become this wonderful foundation, a program where preschool and school-aged children learn how to grow and cook their own food. Such essential life skills. I wonder what some of the things that you really love about the program are. Well, I I just absolutely believe it is incredibly important I love the fact that it works, that we see the children... I mean, this must all be in one of those sentences of before COVID because clearly we've we've had a tricky two and a half years Mm -hmm. with the schools being closed in Victoria and New South Wales and to a lesser extent elsewhere. But um, before COVID... (laughs) I used to regularly visit schools, probably once a month I would visit a school, and even though the schools were very different, some were big, some were small, some were remote, some were very rural, some were in places like the Kimberley or Kalgoorlie, um, the thing that was common to all was the enthusiasm of the students. They absolutely loved being given the experience of getting their hands into the dirt, of actually learning about growing, of actually excited, you know, finding out that a seed goes into the ground and 12 weeks later you can pick a broad bean. Um, it also showed them that not everything is available all of the time. That was a pretty important bit. Um, and then they, uh, they came into a, some sort of kitchen In some schools, it was quite elaborate. In other schools, it was just an electric fry pan plugged in the wall and a table. So this is the whole gamut from big, yeah. The enthusiasm of the students, their response to these experiences is universally enthusiasm. And those kids are all being introduced to new flavours, new cultural influences, 
They're learning about being with other people around a table. One of the saddest things for me is the high percentage of children in our schools who never, and I mean never, sit at a table with anybody so that when we when they have their weekly session where they sit around the table with the food they've made on platters in the middle of the table, just as we've had our beautiful lunch today, that's how we try to serve it. We never dole up a dollop of this or that on a plate. The food is always put on plates so the children themselves have to learn how to pass to somebody and how to take a modest amount so that there's enough for everybody. So there's a whole sense of teaching them about being with others, mm -hmm. about quality. Well, I could go on forever, yeah. but I won't. But it, it is an incredibly important program. It is in 1,500 schools and early learning centres all around Australia. Anyone who has contact with a primary school that does not have the program <laughs> needs to ask themselves, why? Why <laughs> is it not a member of the Kitchen Garden Foundation? Often it... The membership starts from a group of concerned parents who go and have a look at a school that's operating and they say, hey, this is amazing. Or sometimes it, a principal goes to visit another school and sees what's going on. Um, I know that Matt's kids go to West Garth and that he's, he himself has been a great ambassador for the program, that he's a volunteer uh, on a regular basis and is fully cognizant of what it's achieved for his own kids. It's just incredibly important. And if and it seems to me that if there's not some sort of intervention in the way children learn about food and being with other people around a table, we are automatically saying we're handing them over to the advertisers. Mm. Because what else do they do? Mm. You know, if they don't know what to do with a chopped up potato and an eggplant and a bit of parsley and an onion... Um, they're just going to have to get something from the freezer or from a jar or a bottle and they don't know where it comes from, nor do they particularly care. Mm. So it is a very important program and I you know, spend a lot of time with my team which is lobbying because it obviously needs financial support. Mm. We currently have really good support from Coles, which was interesting because they have been very prepared to sponsor fresh food promotions and give us, you know, 10 cents from every bag of salad greens, that sort of thing. And that's been really very important to us. Not a, I mean, the, certainly the 10 cents for the bag is very important, but also the reach that they have mm. through the whole country. Mm. Yeah, I think you don't fully appreciate and value food until you've had to grow it yourself or raise it. Um, Nothing is treated with more tenderness than my asparagus patch, I can tell you that. Um, and you must be seeing, you know, generations of kids discover that sort of before your very eyes. It was such a good I, idea. How did you have the idea? Oh, it just seems like, you know, common sense right. to me. Uh, I just was aware that the, the, the public chat about obesity, tut, 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 terrible, mm. terrible, terrible. People eat so badly, you know, don't they know what to eat? Well, of course they, of course they know what to eat. Mm. They just don't want to eat it. Mm. And um, it just seemed to me that it, that it was just so obvious that you needed to do something about the younger generation. And if and um, anyway, yeah. yeah, that's it. Okay. That brings us to your new book, Home. Um, and I'd love to start by talking about the beautiful essays. If you don't already have this book... Not only is there a plethora of delicious recipes, but each section is broken with a lovely, long, reflective essay about a whole range of topics, memories, stories, it's all in there. Um, and your editor really encouraged you to reminisce, and we're certainly the beneficiaries of that. But I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you approached the essays when you were writing this book. Well, I do rather like to reflect and look backwards, and I'm sure that's to do with it being old. <laughs> you know, you, you feel that everything that you've experienced and uh, to now is only just starting to make that, those more connections and I can see where things come from and who's influenced me in what way. So I do like to look backwards and I do like to see the progress that's been made on various aspects and I do like to 
um, examine my own life, I suppose, mm. because I have, to, I have to acknowledge that I have influenced a lot of young people in many ways, either in hospitality or younger people now in kitchen gardens. Mm. And that's a, res a responsibility, but it's also an incredible joy and a pleasure. And, of course, I love writing. I love words and I, I, I don't think I would – no, I don't have any desire to write a novel really, but I know I couldn't anyway. Um, but I do love to reflect on things that have been important to me. Mm. You mention um, in this book one of my favourite food writers, Patience Gray, and her book Honey from a Weed, which I also – if you have not read that book, you have so much joy ahead of you. And she just put so much personality into her writing and, much like you, was just incredibly ahead of her time. Um, I'd love to hear more about your approach to food writing and the kind of food writing that you love to read. Well, I think that the sort of food writing that I like to do is no longer seen as being appropriate in the age where everybody has an attention span of about one minute mm. or less, probably. Um, I like to be a bit discursive. I like mm. to let things, other influences slip into what I'm writing and I like <laughs> to, in fact, surprise my readers with the, the, the references that I make. There doesn't seem to be much scope. I mean, I haven't, haven't exhaustively explored the world of food writing, but I don't think I don't think that's what people are looking for now. In the in the Instagram age, it's you know the captions, and um, I do that too because I feel I have to. Um, for me, I look for food writing. I look for food writers who tell me stories. I want to know why as much as how. You know, there's a if I want to make something that I've never made before, I want to know a little bit about it. And so food writers that wrap their recipes, like our friend Emiko Davies, who mm -hmm. recently was in Australia, who lives in Florence, but who is half Australian, half Japanese, um, a wonderful writer. She's just written this book called Cinnamon and Salt. It's, I think, her fourth book. And she writes a wonderful book about the Chiquetti of Venice, the little tastes that are set on the bars in all the Ven in every bar in Venice. But she t talks about the history of Venice at the same time. Mm. And, I mean, I just find that a, a more meaningful read for mm. me. But it's not for everyone. Um, so I don't know whether that's a proper answer. No, that's a great answer. I feel just personally with your recipes over these years, I, I, I said this to you before, but I feel like sometimes you're right next to me and when I'm starting to lose my nerve, like the time I made brains from The Cook's Companion, <laughs> you just you just gave me a little bit of encouragement and everything was there and you told me, yeah, every step and the and your experience and there was, there was stories and memories and it was delicious. Um, so this is a... a a cookbook of dishes for the home cook. You have thrown in a couple of chefy, show-offy, fun ones, um, because why not? Um, and I just wondered uh, if there. Were, I'm about to throw to audience questions. I should say so. Just use this moment to have a think. If you have, we have time for a couple of quick questions. But is there any dish um, in this book or not that you find yourself coming back to time and time again? I don't want to say use the word favourite. Because I'm sure you get asked that a lot. What's your favourite dish? I think I probably have to say sort of the braised vegetable dishes because that's what I find is my go-to. Some Many of my friends have a go-to of pasta and that's not my go-to. Uh, my go-to is sort of coming in, taking a nice ceramic dish out of the cupboard, slapping a bit of olive oil in the bottom, <laughs> slicing an onion into four bits, smashing two cloves of garlic, pulling a bay leaf off the tree and then saying, well, what have I got? Okay, I've got a bit of pumpkin, I've got a parsnip, I've got a bit of wet, uh, potato, I've got a something or other and whacking the whole lot in the bowl, rolling it in olive oil, sticking it in the oven, 200 degrees and forgetting about it for three quarters of an hour to an hour and that's dinner, you mm. know. I mean, and it's just so lovely and it can vary every night. 
And then if I want to add something quick and green at the end, a bit of spinach or a bit of a few mushrooms or something, add that in or grill a cutlet or cook a bit of fish. So that's probably my go Braised veg. We had the braised fennel. In a, I've made yeah. that at home. That's delicious. And there's a lovely recipe in the book called, I think it's called Melted Peppers and Whitloff, and that's Ooh, that's I very definitely Whitloff. a sort of a master version of that. Okay. Yeah. It's tonight. Now, we've got time for a couple of audience questions. Does anyone? Can I just say before we go into yes. questions that I want to say that I thought the lunch was absolutely yes. delicious. <laughs> and And I'm very grateful for Montalto for putting on this lovely event. Absolutely. Okay. Hands up. I've got lots more. I was wondering if you ever visited Mercamora and George Mora's restaurants and whether they uh, were part of your growing up. She wonders if you've ever visit if you ever visited Merca and George's Tolano restaurants. I I did. Oh, well, Talano, but Merca was no longer involved. That was definitely George on his own. And I definitely went there many times. That was yummy place to eat. You talk, um, interestingly, about food critics. You mentioned food critics in the book. It actually might be your memoir. Um, and about how they must be drawn, because they're eating out so often, that they must just always be attracted to something just because it's different. <laughs> Um, rather than being nourishing and, and surprising and joyful. Anyway, I love that bit. Um, I think the, if the search for the new is, is, is very hard for media, mm -hmm. for writers. You know, they're, they're constantly, journalists in general, you're constantly looking for the new, the, something that hasn't been said before. Mm. And uh, it does tend to obliterate the pretty good but it's been there for a while yeah there's a reason it's been there for a while one last question i don't have a going for time um i'm of a generation where cooking was taught as at school as a um a compulsory subject and that's been largely phased out so it it does still exist but it's optional and it seems to me what's happened in your case stephanie is that the private sector has come to fill that void but at the primary school level but there are still gaps because there are many schools that don't follow the Kitchen Garden um, Foundation. Just wondering, do you see a role for government adopting some sort of larger role in ensuring that there's access for more students? I, I, personally, I feel there's a great gap since cooking has been dropped from schools as a compulsory part of the curriculum. My dream, of course, is that pleasurable food education, I stress the word pleasure, should be part of the curriculum of every Australian child and, and should be acknowledged as a way of uh, introducing kids to all sorts of concepts, science, art and design, the cultural diversity, mm. um, actual motor skills, environmental sustainability, that it is just such a broad and wonderful area that it would be my dream, which I don't know that I'll ever see achieved, that it should be part of the general curriculum in the same way that science is. Or mm. And in the primary school curriculum, it's there, it is possible to do that. It is more tricky in the secondary school system uh, where it becomes much more selective where kids... But we have secondary schools in our, in our um, scheme, not many, but we do have some secondary schools who have a pleasurable food education program. And, of course, the potential for vocational employment is huge in that industry. One more question. We've got time for one more question. Hi. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Very enlightening. Um, it, it, it's, it, you're fabulous. <laughs> That's why we're all here. Um, I just wonder, um, obviously, it would have been a very challenging journey for you. Here you were becoming a librarian and then travelling as, as a woman as well and then going on to, no, look, cooking is, you know, food is my love, this is where I want to go. What did you draw upon to motivate yourself to keep going because suddenly you had a baby, I mean, your husband, you know, all the things that were happening. How did you motivate yourself to keep going? Not quite sure. I think I've been very bullish and very determined 
and I um, actually haven't been very good at, uh, throughout my life in in assessing what the implications of these decisions. If I want to do something, I'm inclined to say, well, I'm going to do it. Mm. And um, that sounds wonderful and very brave, but sometimes it's quite stupid because, you know, you think within about two weeks of starting the first kitchen garden at Collingwood College, I thought, oh, we need some money. <laughs> You know, I had I had the principal prepared to dig a hole in the school garden. That was fine. And we had teachers who were prepared to help do this. And then I thought, well, goodness. I mean, that's almost – I mean, I'm making fun of myself. But, I mean, in a way it was almost like that. So the determination comes first. And then I say, okay, so how am I going to make it work? And I'm very determined and I usually have been very successful in pulling in other people. And I think that's been a bit of my, it's not a secret, that's been something I've been good at, finding others that want to be collaborators. And they give me strength and they give me someone to talk to about it and together we solve the problems. I actually think your determination is the perfect note to end on because I don't think you would have achieved half as much as you have without it. Um, so I've just got some housekeeping wrap-ups. So all of Stephanie Alexander's books that are in print, because some of them unfortunately are no longer, but if you want to source those, I recommend Tim at Books for Cooks. But Antipodes Bookshop is here selling um, Stephanie's books. I'd like to thank everyone at the Wheeler Centre for making this event possible. I'd also like to thank everyone at Montalto, to every single person who grew the produce for us, raised the animals, prepared the food, cooked, served, cleaned up after us. Thank you. This lunch has been delightful, as Stephanie said earlier. <laughs> so, Stephanie, to you, you write in home that you never tire of their company in reference to your favourite food writers. And I feel, and I'm not going to cry, and I'm sure everyone in this room agrees the very same way about you, there is no way to adequately thank you for all that you have given us, taught us, made available to us, except to say thank you, Stephanie Alexander. Thank you, everybody. That was Jacqueline Krupe in conversation with Stephanie Alexander. This episode was recorded on Thursday the 21st of April 2022 as part of Books and Ideas at Montato. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.